All of these issues have never been about how are you going to pay for it. All of these issues were really about a lack of political will. Ding, ding, ding. AOC gets it right again. No place I'd rather be stuck. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York uh, on WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR in New Orleans, which is under siege right now on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR in Minneapolis. St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. And we stream coast to coast and around the globe even during pandemics. On the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, maybe especially during pandemics. FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Staying at home, says me. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman, and you are, well, you know who you are. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling edition of your stay-at-home companion, the Bradcast. Uh, we are here once again with the delightful Desiree Doyen. Yes, How I am How are you? Here. Are you I'm, delightful? I am holding up. I don't know if I would say delightful. That's about <laughs> as good as it gets right now. We'll take it. Yeah. We'll take it. Hold up. Everyone, please. Keep holding up. Keep holding up. up. Yes. So uh, Prince Charles, the heir to the British throne, is now tested positive for coronavirus. I assume he will be able to get access to a hospital bed and a respirator if, God forbid, it is needed. But will you? The prince's office says the 71-year-old is showing mild symptoms of COVID-19 and is self-isolating at a royal estate in Scotland. Must be nice. Exactly. His wife, uh, Camilla, the office says, has tested negative. That is good news. Singer-songwriter Jackson Brown is running low and tells Rolling Stone that he has tested positive for coronavirus. The 71-year-old singer, whose hits include The Pretender and Doctor My Eyes and Yes, Running on Empty, told the magazine that he got tested after he began feeling ill recently, and I'm glad that he was able to get a test. Most people, most Americans in any event, who need one shamefully still cannot, even though we are now months into this disaster. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee said his symptoms are mild. That's good. He is self-quarantining at home. He urged younger people to take part in the global response to stop the spread of the virus. 
He said, quote, that means not going anywhere, not getting into contact with anybody, not seeing anybody. The four-time Tony Award-winning playwright Terrence McNally, however, whose outpouring of work for the theater dramatized and domesticated gay life across five decades, has died on Tuesday in Sarasota, Florida, from complications of the coronavirus. He was 81 years old. And just to be clear, for progressive radio listeners, that is the playwright Terrence McNally, not my friend and fellow progressive radio host Terrence McNally who many of you may know, that Terrence McNally, though I haven't spoken to him lately, is uh, doing fine to my knowledge. The prolific playwright McNally had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and had overcome lung cancer. He died at Sarasota Memorial Hospital, according to his husband. He received four Tony Awards. For uh, two, uh, two were for uh, musicals, Kiss of the Spider Woman in 93, Ragtime in 1998, and for his plays, Love, Valor, Compassion in 1995, and Masterclass in 96. Those were just some of the three dozen plays to his credit, as well as the books for 10 musicals, the librettos for four operas, and a handful of screenplays from film and television. Terrence McNally. 81-year-old playwright dead from complications due to the coronavirus. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of not-famous people are unable to even get tested for COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus. This remains a very real and unprecedented crisis for the world and the nation, and no, this will not be over in two and a half weeks by Easter When the president of the United States pretends we'll all be fine and we can turn out to church while killing as many as two million Americans in the bargain to save his economy, his reelection chances and his businesses after some six out of seven of his top hotels and golf courses have sadly had to shut down entirely due to the crisis. That just before Donald Trump started declaring that the cure should not be worse than the disease for some reason. Putting that idiocy aside for the moment, Congress is not acting as if this is all going to be over in two and a half weeks either. Senate leadership from both parties and, yes, the White House came to an agreement early Wednesday morning on a $2 trillion bill aimed at providing economic relief to workers and businesses hurt by the pandemic. As AP notes, underscoring the effort's sheer magnitude, even though it may only get us through a number of weeks or months, the bill finances a response with a price tag that's half the size of the entire $4 trillion annual federal budget. Interesting how we seem to be able to come up with plenty of money when we absolutely positively need to come up with that money, isn't it? No talk of pay-fors or uh, pay-as-you-goes or we can't afford to balloon our deficit like that. No, now we are willing to pay uh, more than half of our annual federal uh, budget deficit. And no one is worried about where it's going to where the money is going to come from. We are just doing it. I'll be talking to my guest about that in a moment. If uh, if passed in the Senate on Wednesday, as leaders hope, 
Uh, it remains unclear when the House will take up the legislation, as its members are now home in their districts and have some have tested positive for the coronavirus or have self-quarantined as a precautionary measure. In a written statement, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said the bipartisan agreement, quote, takes us a long way down the road in meeting the needs of the American people, but she stopped short of fully endorsing it. House Democrats will now review the final provisions and legislative text of the agreement to determine a course of action, she said. Just before I got on air, I received a statement from Barbara Lee's office, uh, Democratic uh, Congresswoman from California who said, no, uh, this bill puts the needs of executives, corporate executives first before the needs of American people. So we'll see if the fight in the House, presuming it gets out of the Senate, uh, we'll see if the uh, fight in the House holds up this legislation as well. It would be the third emergency coronavirus spending package Congress has advanced. It would be the largest economic aid measure enacted in U.S. history. Congress has already approved $8.3 billion for health agencies and a roughly $100 billion bill aimed at um, providing free coronavirus testing and paid leave for those affected and additional Medicaid funding and food assistance. The Senate has uh, not yet released the final text of the third coronavirus spending bill, phase three, as they call it, as of airtime. But here's some of what NBC's Laura Egan uh, reports will be in the final text. Individuals making up to $75,000 a year would receive checks for $1,200. Couples who make up to $150,000 would receive $2,400 with an additional $500 per child. That is uh, not going to be enough money. Hell no. That's I'm not even saying. close to yep. what most people have in just their, their minimum rent in yep. large cities, especially. It is also less generous than the version that uh, Democrats proposed in the House on Monday night. That would give uh, $1,500 instead of $1,200 uh, to individuals, though all of these numbers could change uh, when the House takes up the measure. And since I don't think it'll be nearly enough, I suspect those numbers absolutely will change. The initial Republican proposal provided less money to lower-income Americans, Yes, they, they offered even less than that, but uh, that provision was uh, removed from the current bill. As it had been, the Republicans had proposed uh, anyone who did not owe anything in taxes last year would get zero money. The people who need that money the most. Well, that, it's very on brand for Republicans. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, that has been removed. Uh, the bill would increase the maximum state unemployment benefit by $600 per week for up to four months. And that provision, as we go to air, is now being objected to by four Republican senators who are holding up the bill unless that is changed. So a vote at this hour is not moving forward because of these four Republicans. In a statement, Senators Tim Scott Republican of South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, and Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska, uh, were later joined by uh, Florida's Rick Scott, one of the wealthiest members of the Senate. They said that the bill could provide a, quote, strong incentive for employees to be laid off instead of going to work 
because some people, they argue, could theoretically make more money by being unemployed under this measure. They added, quote, we must sadly oppose the fast tracking of this bill until this text is addressed or until the Department of Labor issues regulatory guidance that no American would earn more by not working than by working. I'm glad to see that they're really, really working hard for the low-income American people. God forbid they should have a penny more if they're poor. Well, uh, what their argument is is that uh, you know, th- that this would incentivize layoffs. Um, I don't know if they are right about that or not. That's what they claim. They say it can be fixed legislatively with an amendment. Uh, But I don't know. For now, it is holding up the bill in the Senate. A Democratic Senate Finance Committee aide said Tuesday that a uniform payment of $600 was necessary to avoid bogging states down to uh, deliver individualized benefits. A Republican aide on the Senate Finance Committee said Wednesday that the policy stands and the text of the bill is unlikely to change. A Republican spokesperson for the Senate Finance Committee said nothing in this bill incentivizes incentivizes businesses to lay off employees. In fact, it's just the opposite. Senator Bernie Sanders, a Vermont independent and Democratic presidential candidate, tweeted that unless the GOP senators, quote, drop their objections to the coronavirus legislation, I am prepared to put a hold on this bill until stronger conditions are imposed on the 500 billion corporate welfare fund, as he described it. Good. Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut, said let's not overcomplicate this. Several Republican senators are holding up the bipartisan coronavirus emergency bill because they think the bill is too good for laid off Americans. So that fight will continue, no doubt. Unemployment benefits would also be extended to those who typically do not qualify, like gig gig economy workers, furloughed employees and freelancers. That's good. Under the bill, those nearing the end of their employment timetable could have the period extended by 13 weeks. That is also good. Roughly $350 billion would go towards loans for small businesses. These are companies with fewer than 500 employees. I guess if you have 499 employees, you're still considered a small business. Uh, those companies could be eligible for up to $10 million in forgivable small business loans to allow them to keep paying their employees. Well, I suppose that's good. But what about forgiving uh, student debt? Is that uh, included in here? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, It's a big bill, so we're just learning details of it. Uh, Small businesses that maintain payroll would be eligible for assistance for costs such as mortgages, Uh, rent and utilities. The bill is expected to provide $500 billion in aid for corporations like airline companies that have been hurt by the coronavirus outbreak, but who, like United Airlines, for example, squandered literally 96 percent of the tax cuts that Republicans and Donald Trump gave them just two years ago, squandered it on stock buybacks, not on keeping their employees employed or saving money away in case of, you know, some global pandemic or another comes along and shuts them down. But as Democrats uh, had been concerned that the aid in that $500 billion fund would be used as a slush fund with no oversight, Uh, Provisions were added to help allay those concerns, though apparently not enough yet for Bernie Sanders. 
Um, and, you know, I can understand that. The uh, president of the United States just yesterday said this when he was asked about the slush fund that had no oversight whatsoever other than Steve Mnuchin and the White House. Here's what Donald Trump said. Red fund is about the lack of oversight. Our Treasury having this unilateral authority to dole out all of this money. Well, uh, look, I'll be the oversight. I'll be the oversight. <laughs> Donald Trump. Donald Trump will be the oversight for half a trillion dollars worth of money that can be given to any corporate entity Donald Trump wants, including, by the way, his own companies. But don't worry, he'll be the oversight. He'll be the oversight. Feel better, America? Now, the good news is uh, part of the agreement on this that uh, helped get this thing uh, through uh, at least to an agreement in the U.S. Senate was that the bill would prohibit businesses controlled by the president, the vice president, members of Congress and heads of executive agencies from receiving those loans. That's good. That's very good. I feel moderately better. It would also establish an inspector general and a five-person congressional oversight board responsible for selecting and confirming payments to companies. And Steve Mnuchin would be required to testify about any transactions that he'll be in charge of uh, allowing to go. Although, as we have seen, the White House can simply order Steve Mnuchin to not testify at all, and he will not have to. Am I right, Don McGahn, Mick Mulvaney, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. The bill also gives uh, more than $100 billion in assistance to hospitals. That's an increase from Republicans' initial proposal of $15 billion. $15 billion is all that the Republicans were prepared to give to hospitals in the middle of an unprecedented viral pandemic that threatens to result in tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, without having access to a doctor, a ventilator, or a hospital bed. Also, uh, it would provide $150 billion in stimulus funds for state and local governments to help boost their budgets amid uh, drop-offs in tax revenue. Of course, Republicans Graham, Sass, Scott, and Scott will have to stand down, and Republicans will have to come to terms with whatever House Democrats feel that they need to add to this measure. But either way, it's a lot of money and likely not nearly enough money. But $2 trillion, apparently we are able to spend out of nowhere after how many months during the presidential primary being told by Republicans and Democrats alike that we simply could not afford to give college uh, uh, debt forgiveness uh, for students or pay for their education or house the homeless or guarantee health care as a right, not a privilege. Suddenly, it seems, we've got all the money in the world. And nobody, and I mean nobody, not uh, Democratic uh, members demanding pay-as-you-go policies, not the pretend fiscal deficit hawks on the Republican side screaming about the necessity of getting our fiscal house in order, even as they are giving huge tax cuts to rich people who do not need it and who do not help the economy. None of those people, nobody. Those Republicans who have been insisting for years that we must cut social spending programs for the elderly and for the poor and for the hungry or we will risk going broke. None of them are complaining. Boy, when America needs it, we sure do have all the money in the world that we need. Uh, and the fact is, it's true. We do. 
It's only when the excuses run out for not spending on people in need uh, that there are suddenly no fiscal conservatives left in the foxholes. Why is that? And where is all of this money actually coming from? And why is it taking so long to discover that we have all the money that we need when we need it? I have just the person to ask standing by, the woman who wrote the book on the deficit myth, Dr. Stephanie Kelton of Stony Brook University, formerly the chief uh, economist on the U.S. Senate Budget Committee. She joins us next as she has some splaining to do. Please stick around for that conversation coming up next on the Bradcast, your stay-at-home radio companion. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So, yeah, as noted, Congress is in the middle of passing a gigantic, record-setting $2 trillion emergency relief package in response to the coronavirus pandemic, including, uh, as currently written in the Senate version, individual payouts of $1,200 in the form of checks to all Americans uh, who make up to $75,000 a year. Those numbers could go higher once the Senate legislation is reconciled with a similar relief bill proposed by House Democrats earlier in the week. It also expands unemployment benefits, creates $350 billion in small business loans, much of that likely to be forgivable altogether, and $500 billion in aid for big corporations. As uh, usual, they get the lion's share, though restrictions are said to be in place to ensure money is used to keep workers employed rather than for stock buybacks, as we saw after the 2017 tax cuts, which, in my opinion should be just about all that these corporate uh, corporations uh, get, period, for their stimulus, unless the payments go directly to employees, period. There are also provisions in the bill to prohibit any of that money going to businesses owned by the president, the vice president, members of Congress, etc. Some $100 billion in assistance to hospitals, $150 billion in stimulus funds for state and local governments, but $2 trillion created virtually out of nowhere after months of watching the national debt and annual deficits skyrocket under the Trump administration following their 2017 tax cuts and months of hearing from both Republicans and many Democrats alike during the presidential primary campaign that we simply cannot afford the programs being put forward by progressives like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to assure health care and free public college education to all to forgive student debt to house the national homeless or perhaps most importantly to launch a massive Green New Deal infrastructure and jobs program to help save humanity itself. New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez noted the irony 
in a short video clip cited by the Bernie Sanders campaign this week. And it's actually a fascinating progressive moment because what it's shown is that all of these issues have never been about how are you going to pay for it. It's never been about whether we have the capacity to do these things or if the logistics have worked out. All of these excuses that we have been given as to why we cannot treat people humanely have suddenly gone up in smoke. And what what has been revealed is that all of these issues were really about a lack of political will and who you deemed worthy to be in an emergency or not. Because to me, in New York City, the highest rates of homelessness since the Great Depression has been an emergency for a very long time. And we have had to have been pushing for housing as a human right for a very long time. Now that we are experiencing everybody who's threatened by the uncertainty of this moment, everyone's realizing, wait, we are all in this together. So uh, how is it? Whether it's endless wars waged around the world after 9-11 or huge emergency relief packages for giant corporations after the 2008 financial meltdown or enormous tax cuts and the resulting loss of revenue and the hole blown in our annual budgets from the 2017 tax cuts or now a record $2 trillion emergency relief bill amid a global pandemic that the U.S. government is always able to come up with the money that it needs to spend without so-called pay-fors, reduction of spending elsewhere or increased taxes or pay-as-you-go policies such as those usually instituted by the far more fiscally responsible Democrats. Uh, How is it that we always have all the money that we need when at least Republicans agree that we need to spend it? Where are the complaints about the U.S. government going broke and that we simply cannot afford to spend hundreds of billions and now trillions and trillions when we need to, particularly when among winners and losers being picked by the federal government, the winners tend to be huge corporate special interests? Where are the deficit hawks from both parties today? Pretty quiet, it seems, and perhaps it's because the deficit itself is really a myth, as argued in a new upcoming book by Stephanie Kelton, a myth used to prevent the American government from actually doing what it needs to do to ensure the general welfare of the American people. Joining us now is Stephanie Kelton. She is a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. She is a leading expert on modern monetary theory and a former chief economist on the U.S. Senate Budget Committee. Dr. Kelton is also the author of the insanely well-timed upcoming book, The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy, due out in June and now available for pre-order for folks who may both uh, wonder where all of this government money is suddenly coming from and who may have a lot of time around the house on their hands to read books in the coming weeks and months for some crazy reason. Dr. Stephanie Kelton, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, You recently uh, published a... uh, A humdinger of a tweet thread uh, charging that this latest pandemic and the huge emergency relief bill being put forward underscores how Democrats missed a huge opportunity to talk with people about what it means to pay for 
your spending proposals now that Congress is prepared to spend about $2 trillion without, quote, paying for it. Uh, did my introductory uh, rant uh, right there uh, underscore the central issue uh, that you were getting at in that thread? Yeah, you nailed it. That was really terrific. Oh, good. Okay. I, this seems, I mean, after, you know, months and months of being told, including by many Democrats, that uh, no matter how much the American people may desperately need certain things, whether it's health care or housing, college education, a livable planet, we simply cannot afford this or that, that it will break the budget. And we're, you know, but yet we're suddenly able to pull t $2 trillion out of thin air. And I think, by the way, we're going to have to find much more. You can tell me if I'm wrong or right about that. But how is it that we can suddenly afford that without anybody, including the fiercest Republican deficit hawks, even batting an eye? How can that be? Why is that, Stephanie? Well, as you kind of alluded to in your opening remarks, Congress will always find the funds to accomplish the things that it considers a priority. If it's tax cuts, then that's the priority, and the money will be there. If it's wars, that's the priority. If it's dealing with a, a global pandemic, then that suddenly becomes a priority. But, you know, you're absolutely right, and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez is, is, you know, I think this is really important that she's drawing our attention to this right now, and making it clear, as she said in that video clip that you referred to, she mm -hmm. said, it's now that everyone is threatened that we're choosing to act in ways we always could have acted. That, those are her exact words. We're choosing to act in ways we always could have acted. So it's not, why is it that we're now able to do these things? We were able to do things three weeks ago mm -hmm. and 12 weeks ago and six months ago, you know, when we were in the middle of these Democratic primaries and the debate stage was full of Democratic hopefuls who, you know, ranging from very ambitious spending proposals mm -hmm. to, you know, less ambitious. But the question that confronted each of them, no matter where they went, was, how are you going to pay for it? Yeah. Where is the money going to come from? Right? And again and again and again, we got bogged down with that question. It ate up enormous time off the clock during those debates so mm -hmm. that we never really got to have a full and fruitful debate because everybody started pointing fingers and arguing about the cost, the price tag, your math doesn't add up, mm -hmm. your taxes won't bring in the revenue you say, it isn't really credible, you know, and, and so here we are in this moment where we are witnessing the House and Senate, as you said, conjure into existence in a matter <laughs> of days a couple of trillion dollars. And I think you're exactly right. This isn't going to be the last bill. We're going to have trillions and trillions will follow. And that's the reality of where we are. So I hope that we're going to learn some important lessons out of all of this. I, and I love your phrase, conjure into existence uh, this $2 trillion. And that's really what it is. In a, in a recent uh, op-ed, uh, that you uh, had published in the uh, at the New York Times, you dredged up an an, an old eight second clip from 2009 with then Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke explaining how the uh, how the Fed uh, after the uh, global financial meltdown after that year's global financial meltdown was able to simply spend trillions without using any actual taxpayer dollars to do it. Is that tax money? 
that the Fed is spending? It's not tax money. We simply use the computer to mark up the uh, size of the account. So it's not even tax money, as the uh, uh, chair of the Federal Reserve at the time described it. Why have, you know, I haven't been able to read your upcoming book, The Deficit Myth. It's out in June. But is that the point at the heart of the uh, of this so-called myth that the U.S. can simply pretty much make as much money as we want whenever we want to? It is a central argument in the book. And from that, a lot of other things follow. Yes is the answer to your question. That One of the things that I do in the book, in the very first chapter, which is entitled Don't Think of a Household, Mm -hmm. is I try to shift the reader's thinking about the federal government's finances away from the ways that we're accustomed to thinking about our own personal finances. Mm -hmm. And so we have to disabuse people of these myths that, you know, we have heard from our politicians and from pundits and reporters, and every time you pick up an article, Mm -hmm. you know, when somebody talks and uses language like the government needs to get its fiscal house in order, Mm -hmm. just the reference to the house, that is household budgeting. That is asking us to think of the federal government's finances the way we think of our own personal finances. And because all of us are aware that, you know, it's risky if we try to spend more than we take in year after year, if we're relying on credit cards and other forms of debt to get by, that this is dangerous. We can see people go, go bankrupt, businesses go under. And so when, when we hear politicians talk about the government's budget and the government's finances in ways that remind us of our own personal finances, mm-hmm. it becomes very believable that the federal government is like one of us, mm-hmm. that it should manage its budget the way that we have to manage ours, you know, tighten the belt, live within the means, all those phrases that we hear. So what I do in that first chapter is draw a hard line between Uncle Sam and everybody else. Uncle Sam's on one side of the line. He is the currency issuer. Uncle Sam is the issuer of the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. And all the rest of us, households, private businesses, state and local governments, we are merely users of the currency. We use the dollar they issue the dollar. And that's really the the fundamental difference and why the federal government's finances don't work like ours, why they're not subject to the same constraints as a household or private company. And then once you get your head around that, a lot of other things follow. Now, of course, uh, while Uncle Sam can uh, basically declare this is how much money we have, and uh, as Bernanke says, you know, just use the computer uh, to change those values, if there is too much money pumped into the economy, too much money conjured out of thin air, then eventually we run into problems with inflation and so forth. But you're arguing that at this point, whether it's in the midst of a uh, of a, the, the crisis we're under now or uh, even, you know, a few months ago when we weren't under such a crisis, when we supposedly had a an economy on rocket fuel, that we could have done the same thing, that we could have paid to, you know, uh, send everyone to college or make every, make sure everyone had health care or a home simply by declaring as much in Congress and ordering the uh, Federal Reserve to pay out those dollars. Yeah, so so in that piece that I, uh, I guess in the Twitter thread that you referred to, mm-hmm. I tried to explain to people that Congress always has the authority, always has the option to write a spending bill with or without 
so-called pay-fors. Mm-hmm. So right now, this $2 trillion spending bill was written without pay-fors. It's just Congress sending one set of instructions to its bank, which is the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. And Congress is telling the Fed, we're going to spend $2 trillion, and these are the ways in which that money will be spent. Go make those payments on behalf of the United States government, and the Fed will make those payments. Right. But there's another way to write legislation, and that's the way that, you know, follows or adheres to this PAYGO rule, this budget rule, where you're expected to fully offset any spending you want to do. So if you want to spend a trillion dollars repairing and upgrading America's crumbling infrastructure, mm-hmm. you have to pair that spending proposal with uh, a plan to raise, let's say, a trillion dollars in new revenue. And so that that would send two sets of instructions to the Fed. It mm-hmm. would tell the Fed, go out and make a trillion dollars of payments to Caterpillar and other companies, right, as we do infrastructure investment, and go collect a trillion dollars from these taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Do, do you follow? Yeah. So two sets of instructions. So that when you follow PAYGO, you're subtracting as many dollars out of people's accounts as you're adding to other people's accounts. Right. And, and, and so that's, that's one way to do it, but you don't have to do it that way. So your question is, could, I think, you know, could you just, you know, a year ago, could we have just done free college mm-hmm. or Medicare for all or whatever? The answer is, first, yes, Congress can write and pass any bill it chooses. Period. Mm-hmm. The, the risk, though, is that if you don't include offsets and you're simply authorizing these huge spending bills left and right, at some point you're going to eat up all of the fiscal space that's available in the economy. In other words, it's mm-hmm. going to become inflationary. Right. So there is, a t- there is a time and a place for offsets. It's not a free lunch, uh, and Congress should budget our economy's real resources carefully, being mindful of how much slack is available in the economy to take more spending without creating an inflation problem. For example, you had uh, cited in that Twitter thread, uh, Senator Sanders had proposed that we cancel $81 billion in medical debt, and you argue we could have easily done that without offsets because canceling medical debt would then allow uh, that $81 billion to be spent on other things. In other words, it would go into the economy. It wouldn't disappear uh, entirely. And as a matter of fact, it might uh, help the economy more by having you know, average Americans have an extra $81 billion that they are able to spend. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, a canceling $81 billion of medical debt is like nothing. I mean, it's, it's everything to the people who have medical debt, mm-hmm. but from the perspective of the federal budget, it's practically a rounding error. It's so trivial. We could have done that and not offset it. And the point about me saying that it leaves people with with money that they otherwise would have spent mm-hmm. trying to pay down their medical bills, that they could have done something else with that money. And you're right. It, to the extent that that freed-up income gets spent into the economy, maybe the restaurant has to hire another busboy. So mm-hmm. if somebody cre- you're creating a job, yeah. you know, maybe you're giving a bigger tip to the waitress when you have a meal out, so she has a little bit more money. I mean, you know, those are the kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wouldn't possibly have been inflationary. The, the numbers are just too small. So that was the kind of thing that you could just easily have passed 
so, done, you know, major good for a significant number of people in this country who are struggling with medical debt. Uh, so I, I, so what I'm trying to, you know, you mentioned the first chapter of your book saying, you know, this is not the gov- that government is not like a household. One of the great cons I have uh, discussed for years is Ronald Reagan saying the government is not the, the solution. The government is the problem. Another great con that I think comes from Republicans is akin to the, you know, we should manage it like a household is we should government must be managed like a business. And I think mm-hmm. that thinking has sort of led to the great businessman that we now have in charge of our federal government. I, and I think that's where it comes from, that that sort of thinking. Now, you, Stephanie Kelton, you were on the uh, Senate Budget Committee on the Democratic staff of that committee. So I'm hoping you can give me some uh, insight here, because it seems like it is always it's the Democrats who are actually the party of fiscal conservatism. They're the ones who institute these pay-as-you-go policies uh, when they come into power. Republicans never do any such thing, even while they pretend to be the fiscal conservatives. Uh, Every time they're in power, they balloon the federal deficit. I mean, every single time. So uh, how do we explain, what what do you suspect is the reason that a, a great educator and, and, and finance expert like Elizabeth Warren or someone like Bernie Sanders, why have they been unable to explain these ideas in the middle of a presidential primary when, you know, even they were going out of their way to explain how their plans would be deficit neutral or even save taxpayer money, uh, as in the case of Sanders' Medicare for All program? I understand why the media picks up these sort of right-wing Republican talking points, but you had Democrats, you had Joe Biden, you know, turning back against both of these guys, saying we simply can't afford that sort of thing. Why can't we get this message out? Well, so you mentioned Senator Sanders, and you've probably heard him say a hundred times, I know I have, Mm -hmm. that change never comes from the top down. Mm -hmm. It always comes from the bottom up. And I feel like, and I say this in the book, that I tell a little story, actually, in the last chapter of the book. I tell a, a story about a meeting that I had with Congressman Emanuel Cleaver back in the um, aftermath of the financial crisis. I mean, the economy was, I, I can't, I, it's in the book, the year, mm-hmm. but I think we were technically in recovery, but conditions were still so bad, unemployment was so high, and we went to pay him a visit and went through all of this stuff about the myths and misunderstandings about the deficit, and by that point, Democrats had gotten really cold feet, right? They saw they did the seven hundred and eighty seven billion dollars stimulus. It it helped a bit, but it didn't go nearly enough. And they saw the deficit exploding, they saw the debt increasing, and they got very anxious and and pivoted toward deficit reduction. Mm-hmm. And so I went to visit the congressman uh, along with uh, Warren Mosler, uh, and we sat down and we walked him through all of this stuff. And there was a moment in the conversation where you could feel that light bulb go on. I mean, you just saw it happen. You know, he suddenly he was seeing things differently. And he uh, leaned forward across his desk and he said to us, I can't say that. <laughs> and I'll never forget that, you know, because... Why? It, it, Why? It, well, I'm, what are they well, afraid so that's of? Your question, right? Yeah. So what? What would it look like? Imagine. I, I've done this uh, a lot of times. I would imagine what would it look like mm-hmm. if one of them. You mentioned two names, but suppose one of them had 
gone out on the debate stage or sat for one of these interviews with 60 Minutes or, you know, Sunday morning talk shows and gotten the question, how are you going to pay for it? Mm -hmm. Now, you have a 12-minute block or a 6-minute block or whatever, and you're going to try to deprogram <laughs> the American people and oh. convince them that, def that the deficit is the wrong thing to worry about. Actually, you don't have to pay for it. You can, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's an educate. You, you have to educate people, and nobody else in the world is saying it. So yeah. for, for him, for, you know, if it's whoever's going to go out and take that plunge, take that risk to be the first one to go out there and start talking differently about these things, unless you think that there's, there are people who are going to be behind you and mm -hmm. not pointing and laughing at you, but mm -hmm. actually be a receptive and thoughtful audience for that kind of stuff. I just think it's viewed as, as way too risky at this time. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say, you know, we have to make it impossible for them mm -hmm. to walk into a room, to go before their constituents, to show up in their um, districts and, and go before their voters and have somebody say to them, Congressman X, we desperately need to be investing in blah, 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 and have that congressman say, oh, I know, I, I agree with you, I wish we could do it, but we got these trillion-dollar deficits, we can't afford it. In that moment, I want there to be enough people in the room who can stand up and say, don't give me that. Right. I know how it works. Don't tell me that. See, I think that's where the change will ultimately come from. That's the that's the deficit myth. And uh, it's going to take the American people saying, you know what? Uh, in many cases, the deficit doesn't matter. It, it, the spending matters because the spending puts money into the economy. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, Andrew Yang was willing to uh, go outside the box and he's starting to look pretty smart now uh, when he was talking about a thousand dollars per month to uh, all Americans. He was never enough of a front runner that people really pressed him on where that money was coming from. So he was able to say that over and over again. And lo and behold, what are we looking at now? Cash payments to Americans. And they may have to go on for quite some time. Uh, Stephanie, I've got just a, a few minutes here, but I want to ask a, a couple of quick questions. Uh, given what we know now about the this pending $2 trillion stimulus plan, I think you already said that you don't think it will be enough, but uh, does it take into account the type of spending uh, that you feel is necessary in a situation like this, unlike uh, the last couple of financial crises we saw where over the past decade or two where much or most of the money went to corporate interest rather than to the pockets of actual Americans? Look, I think that right now, and I haven't had uh, an opportunity to study the final language of the bill, but I'm not entirely uh, impressed with what I see so far. I'm mm. afraid it, it does more of what you just suggested, mm. uh, which is to say that it puts too much money into the corporate bin and not nearly enough into the hands of the people who most mm. need it, into the hands of working people, people who are losing their jobs, small businesses. So... I'm discouraged, to mm. be blunt. I am, I'm not an economist, but we had the uh, American Prospects financial journalist David Dayen on the show yesterday. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I, and I asked him about a tweet that I posted over the weekend that I described as Brad's bipartisan stimulus plan, and I would love to get your thoughts on it as well. Uh, here is one tweet. Here, here's what it is. One, Huge corporations may continue to receive the huge tax breaks that they were already given by Trump and the Republicans in 2017 for as long as two, 
individuals receive the same amount each year in a new ongoing emergency cash payout package. Even, Stephen, end of plan. You can cancel both of them once the emergency is over, but you can't cancel one without canceling the other. Does that get us back towards where we need to be, Stephanie Kelton? Well, look, you're, you're definitely thinking uh, in the right terms that we, we've got to make sure that there's corporate accountability. We've got to make sure that the money that is desperately needed by people who are losing their jobs by the millions each week now, we're going to start seeing these numbers come in tomorrow. Uh, the expectation is that we're going to have more than 3 million new people uh, filing for unemployment insurance tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you, and, and we've got to do something to put strings on this. Mm-hmm. If we're gonna, but it doesn't look like we've done that. It looks like what we're going to do is establish a $4.5 trillion corporate bailout fund with very little oversight, and we're going to tell companies you can have this money as long as you promise not to lay off more than 10% of your workforce mm-hmm. over the next six months. But then after the six-month period, there are no restrictions mm-hmm. thereafter. So, you, you know, yeah. I mean... Well, see, that's what I mean. That's why I'd rather give it directly to the people. It feels like the corporations, yeah. they already got their stimulus bill two years ago. And whether they blew it on stack, stock buybacks or not, that's their problem, uh, not ours. Uh, but, yeah, I think we're going to have to uh, figure this out uh, big time. And this uh, bill in Congress is just a part of it. The last question I want to leave you with is after this, and I suspect this is why you've been writing what you've been writing, your books, your op-eds, your uh, tweet threads and so forth. But is this something after this emergency is over, if it ever is over, Will 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 we remember this or will we forget it? Will we remember this when we re- when you know we we face the f- fact that we need to you know save the planet with a green new deal program that we need to spend? And I, I you know I know Fox News and Republicans they're gonna, they're already forgetting what's going on, but will Democrats remember this moving forward after this emergency is over so that we can finally spend what we need to spend to take care of the people? in this country? And I hope so. I, I mean, I hope that the, the lesson is, I hope it's all being laid bare and that the, the right lessons are being drawn and that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, that we look back on the legacy deficits and the addition to the debt and say, you know, in some panicked state, that now is the time that we have to begin to try to force the economy to return the budget to balance or something like that. Because mm-hmm. as, as you said, when we get through this thing, and we will, there's a crisis on the other side. We were already in the midst of a climate crisis. Mm-hmm. And so when the health pandemic problem crisis is gone, we're, we're right back in the frying pan. That's what I'm worried about, that even Democrats will go back to, you know, pretending, declaring they are fiscal conservatives. Uh, it's going right. to take uh, a lot more people out there, uh, So that, which is why I'm so appreciative of, of the noise that you're making about all of this, because it's going to take all of us to continue repeating these messages until... until until folks understand it, or we're going to be mired in this same muck we have been, this really Republican-based muck we have been uh, uh, mired in for decades now. Stephanie Kelton is a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. Her uh, new book, her upcoming book, which you can pre-order now, is The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory, and the Birth of the People's Economy. 
Stephanie Kelton, it's uh, been an honor. Uh, greatly appreciate you joining us. Oh, and people should follow you on the Twitters at Stephanie Kelton. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Okay, quick break. We'll come back with our closing few minutes, and I will try, I will find, I will scrape, I will look, I will scour <laughs> for some kind of good news Okey to doke. end today's show. <laughs> no, no promises, though. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, running low and running on empty, and we are barely into this uh, pandemic, I'm afraid. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That is, of course, Jackson Brown, who is uh, who has tested positive for the COVID-19 uh, disease brought about by coronavirus. We wish him all the best. So I promised you some good news. Uh, this is not yet it. Okay. <laughs> uh, we, we shared uh, some of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's urgent pleas to the federal government to take action yesterday to help out New York as confirmed cases of coronavirus in the Empire State have now climbed into the tens of thousands and are doubling every three days at this moment. They have a need. They're predicting a need for as many as 140,000 hospital beds. The state currently only has about 50,000. They are tens of thousands short of the um, uh, respirators that they will need. The situation, however, is becoming no less dire in Louisiana, where Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards sent a letter to the White House this week pleading for federal aid as his state begins to drown in coronavirus cases. He says uh, in the letter that Louisiana has more than 1,172 cases of the virus and only 381 intensive care unit beds to treat those infected. For the New Orleans area, the current projections of hospitalization significantly exceed capacity beginning on April 4. He says we've seen a tenfold increase in cases over the last two weeks. My fear, based on modeling that I've received, is that as early as seven days, we can start to exceed our capacity to deliver health care. So that was uh, last week. And just yesterday, Trump was going on Fox News declaring he wants everyone to go back to business and, and crowd into churches by Easter Sunday in just two and a half weeks. 
So what will suffice for our good news today? Well, governors across the nation are ignoring the idiot man-child president of the United States. Okay, that is good news. According to AP, uh, governors, Republican and Democratic, are uh, just basically ignoring him and rejecting his new accelerated timeline for reopening the U.S. economy as they continue to impose more restrictions on travel and public life in an attempt to curb the spread of the coronavirus. So, uh, for example, Maryland's governor, Larry Hogan, he's the head of the National Governors Association, and he's a Republican. He called the messaging confusing and said that uh, we, we can't be doing this on some White House, quote, imaginary clock. He said, we don't think that we're going to be in any way ready to be out of this in five or six days or so or whenever his 15 days is up from the time that they started this imaginary clock. It is, of course, state leaders, not the federal government, who are responsible for both imposing and lifting the stay-at-home orders and other restrictions intended to stop the contagion. In other words, while Trump is talking about lifting the restrictions, he hasn't actually imposed any restrictions. It's the governors and the mayors who are doing so. Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom has rejected the nonsense from the White House, as has Andrew Cuomo in New York, of course. Michigan's Gretchen Whitmer, a, a Democrat, said Trump's off-the-cuff statements are really going to undermine our ability to help protect people. Illinois' J.B. Pritzker said Trump was not taking into account the true damage that this will do to our country if we see truly millions of people die. And even some of Trump's usual allies are continuing to move ahead with tighter controls on travel and commerce and mobility. Despite his words in Texas, Republican Governor Greg Abbott has endorsed stay-at-home orders that continue to spread throughout the biggest cities there, even though Governor Abbott has himself failed to issue a stay-at-home order for the entire state. Republican Governor uh, Doug Ducey in Arizona says public health needs to come first. South Dakota's Republican Governor Kristi Noem is stressing that this situation is not going to be over in a week. We have another eight weeks until we see our peak infection rate. So your good news, no one takes the president of the United States seriously anymore. No one in this country, hopefully no one in this world that will suffice for our good news. At least the governors of across the country aren't paying attention to his nonsense. I'll take it. Take what we can get. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Stony Brook University's Stephanie Kelton, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download them for free at bradblog.com. My thanks to those of you helping to keep independent media alive at a time we need independent media more now than ever. Uh, thanks to those of you who help us by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the TheBradBlog. Until you find me here tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.